these industries quite different from real estate and construction in the sense of their market makeup. Energy is more or less an oligopoly. A handful of names that would consistently deliver infrastructure projects at the national scale. I think especially since the events of last year and with energy prices, there's been a lot fewer SME energy companies. And so if you're an energy tech startup and you're selling to an energy company, then there's only a large handful of energy companies that really will help to actually scale. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm joined by King Mar Mar, UK Managing Director of PropTech One, a VC fund invested in European early stage startups that transform the built environment across their two funds. Now, although the Prop tech scene has only recently matured. I think that those who know him would agree with me in saying that Kingmar is very much a UK prop tech OG and one of the most active expert voices in the market. What sets Kingmar aside from others is his macroeconomic analytical lens that he applies to the built environment, allowing him to break away from the noise and invest ahead of the curve. With a fascinating portfolio such as direct air capture company Neocarbon, climate risk insurance Floodflash, and climate-neutral building retrofit company EcoWorks. One quick point before I pass you over to Kingma. If I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it would really help promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's pass over to Kingma. My name is Kingma Amal. I'm based in London, and I work as a managing director in the UK for a VC called PropTech One. And what we do at PropTech One is we invest into early-stage European startups innovating the built environment, namely looking at real estate, construction, energy, and infrastructure as four key industries. PropTech One started in 20, 2018 in Berlin. So actually my head office is based there and most of my colleagues are working there as well. And we started with a 50 million euro fund one, which we started deploying in 2019 and very recently have finished deploying. So we invested into 17 startups from that fund one. But we are onto our fund two as well, which we've raised currently around 44 million so far and uh, very much focused on like mostly pre-seed, seed, and some Series A around investments. I joined PropTech One about two years back at the start of 2021 to open up our UK office and UK team. And so we have a small team on the ground in London. And what I do specifically is, A, like any investment analyst, I source potential investment opportunities for us. I do research, I do diligence, I work with the founders and also some key staff of the some of the companies that we've invested in. And on the other hand, what I also do, which is maybe slightly different from what some other VC analysts do, is also I do some business development for Project One as well. So I think it's my responsibility to make sure that we as a VC are quite well known in the UK market when it comes to both the startup and investor community, and also the industries as well, the industries that we focus on. It's really helpful for us to make the right introductions, I think, to the right founders at the right time. And in order for us to actually make the most meaningful introductions, we need to have also relationships with real estate companies or with people in the ecosystem like myself, Jack. So that's what I do in a One of the things that really stood out to me in looking at your portfolio is how diverse some of the startups are in terms of the specific use cases that they're targeting and the approach that they're taking. And it really made me wonder whether PropTech is moving away from the pure corporate real estate use cases that you traditionally saw and now expanding into wider built environment challenges like energy and infrastructure. What's your perspective on this? I think it's a really good question. So when we started at PropTech One and we started investing in 2019, we were very much, I think, focusing on three key themes to invest in. The first one being digitalization of the built environment. And really, that was really driven by corporate real estate, asset managers, property managers, et cetera, to 
looking for digital solutions to their existing workflows. And on top of digitalization, there was also customization. So helping real estate asset owners slash managers adapt their, their, their buildings towards changing, changing needs or changing demographics. And the third part was on sustainability. And I think as two, obviously very major things have happened since we've started investing one, which is a COVID lockdown and the impact that's had some positive, some negative on various different real estate asset classes and also digitalization. And the other thing, of course, Russian invasion of Ukraine as well, and what that's done for driving energy prices too. And throughout consistently as well, there's been greater attention, greater awareness, greater understanding and greater investments towards sustainability too. And so what this means over time, there are, I think, quite a lot of digitalization solutions across PropTech, across the built environment. And with technology, the sort of barriers to entry, the cost of capital to build these solutions has gone down, which is great, I think, from market entrant and also from an options perspective. So if you're a buyer, if you're a property manager or an asset owner, you're looking for a digital solution, uh, depending on what you're looking at, there might be already a lot of options on the market for you to, to try out. But it does mean that as an early stage investor, some of the areas that we were very interested in 2019 have been quite crowded. And now that we're looking at 2023, on the other hand, with sustainability and with rising inflation, especially driven by energy, there's been a huge opportunity for, I think, for startups, for innovators to really talk about how do we decarbonize the built environment and how does technology accelerate that, that process as well. And so I think over time, between first starting investing in 2019, up until now and, and increasingly so in the future as well, we're really looking at a lot of sustainability-based innovations. And many of them could be digital solutions as well, but also some of them are more hardware-based, more in terms of relating to the building materials or retrofitting or a particular piece of hardware like heat pumps or renewable energy sources, et cetera, that, that, that one can install into their, into their building. Real estate, energy, infrastructure, these represent massive markets that form the world that we live in. I really love the opportunity for impact in these segments, but we also know from an investor's perspective that they bring so many complexities to the venture process of generating a return. You've been personally focused on PropTech for a long time now. What have been your key learnings to identifying the winners and how has your investment thesis evolved over time? So I think when it comes to having conversations with founders, particularly early stage founders, I think one of the kind of key lessons for me is to focus the conversation in two very different areas, both of which I think a founder has to really prove that they excel at in order for, for their startup to be considered shortlist, essentially a shortlist investment for our fund. One side is on the distribution side and the other side is on the product side. And they require very different, I think, team and team composition and sources of expertise to be able to do really, really well. So product means how defensible, how innovative, how much value does that solution add to their end customer? And generally when it comes to technology, it's cheap, faster, smarter, one or multiple of those parameters, and therefore communicate how your products compares to existing solutions on the market. And they could be other startups, they could be enterprise solutions, they could be just existing, maybe more manual, slightly less digital processes, obviously varies company by company and context by context, but that's really important. and communicating why you have the team, why you have the resources and you have, well, maybe not the resources, but you have the plan at least to build the resources in order for you to deliver a cutting edge product. That's really, really important. But the second side is, is distribution, right? So distribution is how well you can market, how well your 
own market understands and is aware of your product and is excited by that as well. And particularly in the industries that we focus on infrastructure and energy and real estate construction, it can be very tricky to sort of spread by word of mouth and meet the right bias in the industry. And I think over time, I've been investing in this space for, for four years or so. I've definitely learned in terms of like what are some of the positions or, or signals, essentially, I'm guessing from startups that is communicating, okay, they basically have some form of distribution advantage over maybe similar, similar solutions in their space, and this will help them to scale. So I can go into distribution and products a lot more into a lot more detail, but I think just communicating where you sit, if you're a founder with those, along those two axes is really, really important to get a better, to build a better picture, sorry, to whoever you're setting your proposition to. And just on the point of distribution, something that's always struck me about the property market is that a lot of startups target customers who are major corporate entities like your JLLs, CBREs, et cetera, and who typically have money, which is great because it then accelerates the uptake of technology and then the overall evolution of our industry. But then I guess a downside is that there's then a lot of money and there's then high competition, which is often why we maybe see oversaturation in places with sort of countless property management apps being a, a good example of that. Is this in line with your thoughts and how much value do you place as an investor on startups with relationships with the big players? I think on our side, we place a lot of value in these relationships. The majority of PropTech propositions that we look at are B2B propositions. And whilst the industries that we cover are enormous industries, right? Like construction is, I think, something like 10% of UK's GDP, for example, Real estate is the biggest asset class in the world. These industries are also super, super fragmented, right? So in the real estate world, for example, and it's true for construction, of course, as well, there's some very large players. There's some global players. You mentioned JOL. JOL is definitely one of them. And then there's a massive long tail of independent companies as well. You know, some are family businesses, some are private companies, some are just like one person bands or, or one or two, three person bands as well. You really have to be much more nuanced in terms of who you're actually targeting and why you're targeting at that time. A lot of this information isn't, isn't public. You can't Google it or type in ChatGPT and expect a good answer. You have to basically surface this information through having hot coffees or having Zoom calls, whatever, friendly conversations with, with the market. And then I think having these relationships, then you get a better idea as a founder of like where you can best navigate and who some of the most receptive companies are. JRL. Just to use that example, obviously I don't work for JRL, so I don't want to give the impression I'm, I'm only just promoting them, but they're very, very, very forward thinking when it comes to how do they invest in technologies? How do they, how do they utilize technologies? How do they source technologies for their clients as well? So what it means is that actually they're very open towards working with different founders from different countries, focusing on different things at various different stages. I would say on the other hand, we also, cause we also look at infrastructure and we also look at energy. These industries are quite different from real estate and construction in the sense of their market makeup. Energy is more or less an oligopoly. Infrastructure contractors at the, the tier one contractor side, very much also a handful of names as well that would consistently deliver infrastructure projects or at least bid for them at the national scale as well. So I think that's a very different play. I think especially since the events of last year and with energy prices, it's been a lot fewer sort of SME energy companies. And so if you're an energy tech startup and you're selling to an energy company, then there's only a handful, a large handful of energy companies that really will help to actually scale as well. So I think it's a very different market. But then again, there's lots of B2C opportunities as well in energy tech. So, uh, so I don't give the impression that we only interested, for example, in a 
startup that EDS is using or, or British Gas. What do you think industry could do to make it easier for founders to solve their problems? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the work that you've done, Jack, in terms of your background has been pretty fantastic, right? So you've worked at large companies with digital service arms. And so part of that job is to build out, I imagine, like a team of sort of almost like internal consultants, right? Understanding what the biggest value add opportunities are in innovation and then sourcing potential solutions to help with that and making sure that the relationship between the, the vendor and the, the team internally is going smoothly, that both sides understand what their dynamics are and what the different priorities are. So I think quite a few different construction companies and real estate companies, for example, have done various things when it comes to engaging with the startup ecosystem. Some have invested directly, some have built out their own technology teams, some have invested in VCs like us, for example, like we have two funds and we've raised almost hundred million so far that we've closed officially. And that capital comes from something like over 60 external investors, most of which, most of which are large real estate companies like Commerce Real, for example, or, or like JOL. And so and if you're a large company, obviously you, you might have multiple strategies, you might have multiple arrows in your bow. So this is not to say any of those options are, are mutually exclusive, but I think that's a good way to say, okay, I have personnel in, internally that is focused in terms of introducing innovation and I'm going to give them the responsibility, the budget, the mandate and the attention from the rest of my organization so that whatever they introduce can actually be directly executed and applicable and making sure, and I, I don't think there's that many people, to be honest, in the jobs market that have the experience that you would have, Jack, to be honest, as someone who's been both a founder of a startup, so what it's like on that small scale side, plus has worked in corporate innovation as well. And so, so making sure that these teams are led by the right people with the right network, with the right understanding on both sides is really, really important to, to get right in order to make it actually a, a well-oiled machine internally. So I think that's really important. And I think the other thing is just empowering. I mean, again, I'm sure this is what consultants are like Accenture or BCG Digital Ventures would sell as well, but sort of like just empowering culture to be more open-minded and be more willing to share and willing to search for innovations themselves that can, can solve their direct problems. And if there's some incentive for them to do that, that's really great because that, I think that's working quite well for certain companies when it comes to sustainability at least. And so maybe building in some of the right incentive systems in place, having a culture that is very open towards like looking at innovative ideas, that's certainly really helpful as well for corporates to embrace startups more in, in, in PropTech. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. And I think it's very much reflective of a, a mature innovation ecosystem. With the revenue models for startups working in the construction industry, being very much project-based rather than recurring revenue-based that you would see in, say, fintech and other software-based industries. How would you say investor receptiveness to these revenue models has developed and changed over time? So there's, so the fundraising environment that we are in now in 2023 is a lot harder than I think it probably was in 2021 and, and the start of 2022 as well. And I know there's been a lot of direction generally from from VCs to focus more on SaaS revenue. And there's a couple of reasons why is because SaaS is generally a bit more predictable. The levers are quite well known in terms of how to like activate, how to re-engage, et cetera, customers. It's more defensible as well. It's often more sticky. So those are some examples of, of benefits of SaaS revenues. I think Jack, you're absolutely spot on that the construction industry is a project 
based business model, right? So ultimately your revenue as a contractor or subcontractor is not going to be recurring. It's going to be based on getting commissions, getting work from, from developers. So how do you square that? Well, some software can be used, I think, for a wide range of construction projects. Take Procore as an example, right? It's a very, very large construction tech enterprise headquartered in the US. It's a SaaS revenue model because ultimately, regardless of the type or the shape of construction, then some project management needs to happen. And, th- and so therefore, Procore's customers sort of purchase that on a subscription basis. But the majority, I would say, of construction tech startups probably aren't subscription-based. Does that mean they're not interesting for us? Absolutely not. However, they do need to prove out that essentially that they can be scaled. If they can prove out that they have a very long waiting list, let's say customers that want to use their projects, and that doesn't seem to have any like in finite end in the near future, then that can be a really good data point for us, even if it's not subscription. For example, one of the companies in our portfolio called EcoWorks, it's a German-based company that's, that's, that does retrofitting at scale. So they connect essentially the module panel providers for buildings with project managers, with asset owners of buildings that are trying to get to net zero and, and they work project by project, but there's there's such a massive problem of how do you decarbonize your residential buildings in Germany and in many other countries as well, including the UK, that they, over time, as they've developed out their product and as they've won loads of awards and loads of recognition from the industry, that pipeline of projects and therefore pipeline of revenue only increases, increases as well. So I don't think it's a business model that, that whatever goes description, suddenly it's not in their, in their plans, but that's not to say it's not a, it's not a unhealthy business or not a venture backward business at all, quite, quite the opposite. And I know that from my own experience as a founder, it's sometimes a point of contention on when to bring on board strategic investors, which in the prop tech world are often major corporate funds, as opposed to pure play venture funds or, or specialist investors. What's your perspective on this and what advice would you give to a startup founder? So I think strategic investors are great if there's nothing onerous in their terms that, that forces the startup to go in a different direction or to say no to certain opportunities at a future date. You know, we have a couple of portfolio companies that suddenly have strategic investors on board and they've been very helpful in terms of making right introductions, in terms of introducing business. Examples that come to mind, for example, is like Floodflash, which is a parametric flood insurance provider. They cover building owners, they cover your tenants of a property at risk of floods. And some of their investors include like, meaning include MSNAD, which, are, which is a large insurance company. These are strategic investors, but they don't have anywhere in their relationship with them say, to say you cannot work with whatever insurance provider or work through whatever channel because we are an investor. So that's, I think that's a really positive value as relationship. Similarly, like we invest in the Dasana as well and JOL introduce some of their, refer some of their corporate clients as well to Dasana's workspace, office space, marketplace solution. But also I think in the case of like JOL and, and in the case of Munich Re, these are large organizations that have a lot of experience of working with startups. So that's, that's really good. I think some strategic investors are, don't have so much experience, could put onerous terms, can be very slow when it comes to making decisions. And sometimes maybe the, the principal you're speaking to from the strategic investor side, maybe they need buy-in from this, the board ultimately, or the CEO or someone, and maybe it might be very difficult to get their time. So Therefore, understanding like how much power, how, how agile at the strategic investor can operate and act in, I think is really important because I think it's a quite a varied landscape. 
And I think secondly, like any terms that would essentially sort of handcuff a startup to only that corporate and, and not with the wider market, that, that, that would be a big flag for us as a VC investor, obviously that's not single enterprise backed and, and probably wouldn't be such a deal for, for a founder either. Kingma, thanks so much for your time. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks for joining me. I really hope you found it interesting. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we'll be stepping into the world of infrastructure industry policy. Thanks and goodbye.